much information on sanctification. Uh, and so what I wanted to do this week was to focus more specifically on the war that rages within us from Romans chapter 7. But there's no way you can just jump right into Romans 7 without connecting it and seeing the connection it has with Romans 6. Paul's main point in our scripture reading of chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, is that the identity that we've been given in Adam has now been dropped by God. And we have been given a new identity that is now in Christ. So everything that is true of Christ is now true of all those who are in Christ. Which means now this new identity that we have in Christ is the power to help us to live new lives. See, Paul's whole argument is that because of Jesus' work, a believer has been transferred out of one realm and into another. We have been transferred out of the dominion of sin where we are now under the dominion of God's grace. In this new realm, we have a new king. We have a new master. We have a new address. We have a new citizenship. We have a new identity. We have a whole new way of life where now we do not relate to sin the way we once did. In Adam, we were at peace with sin. We were slaves to sin. All we could do is obey sin's desires. But now in Christ, sin's dominating power has been broken. So we're set free to live for God. And now, in Christ, we are at war with sin. Sin's dominating power has been broken, but sin's presence still indwells every believer. So I want you to think of it this way. Like Pharaoh did, after God freed Israel from Egypt, what did Pharaoh do? He still pursued them. He still tried to enslave them. He still tried to overcome them and destroy them. Sin still seeks to rule over us. Sin still seeks to pursue us. Sin still tries to make us its slave to destroy us. And because it does, in verses 11 through 23 of chapter 6, Paul is commanding us to go to war against it. But every military leader will tell you that in order to defeat your enemy, you have to know your enemy. So Paul, in chapter 7, he wants us to know the enemy that still resides within us. And because it's a long passage, I'm going to have you remain seated. We're going to read all of chapter 7, and you cannot go through chapter 7 without reading chapter 8, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, (laughs) that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law 
having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and then I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me quickly pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need your Spirit to open our eyes to see the reality and the truth of what Paul is teaching us in this text. This is a powerful text if we get it, but we need your help to see it. And so I pray you'd give me word and power to preach it as I ought, and then open our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. All right. It was my sophomore year in college when I injured my neck, which ended my wrestling career and gave me an opportunity to get involved in a campus ministry. Now, <laughs> even though my competitive athletic days were over, oh, my competitiveness carried over into my Christian life because I was going to be the best Christian in this ministry. So I went to every conference. I led a Bible study. I evangelized five times a week 
Over spring break, I went to Daytona Beach to do beach evangelism. Over the summer, I did a long-term 11-week mission project to Czechoslovakia. After a year, I did gain the reputation of being a spiritual Christian. People looked up to me because it looked like I had it all together. But what people didn't know is that I had a smile on my face but a frown on my heart. All those spiritual activities I did, they weren't bad. They're all really good. But it's what drove me to do them was because there was something going on within me that I did not understand. See, even though it looked like I had it all together outwardly, inwardly, I knew that things weren't right in my heart. I thought that I could fix what was going on in my heart by doing all these spiritual activities. And then I also thought that if I did more spiritual activities, it would cause other people to not suspect that there was something wrong with me. See, no matter what I did outwardly, I couldn't get away from the fact that there was something seriously wrong within me. I struggled with things that nobody looked like they struggled with. I thought things. I desired things. I secretly acted on things that nobody knew. And I was able to keep up the pretense for a while. But then I couldn't manage my sin very well. And then others began to notice. Their reactions, they varied, but it's the way that they reacted. It's the way that they reacted which reinforced in me a distorted view of sanctification that has, quite frankly, been hard to shake ever since. See, very simply, what was going on in me is what Paul describes in verses 14 through 25. But because of the way people reacted to my struggle with sin... It made me think I was alone in my struggle. It made me think that what I was going through was not normal for a Christian. Over the years, I've come to love Romans 7. Because Romans 7 brings clarity to the contradictions in my own heart. Romans 7 brings great comfort because I know I'm not alone in this struggle. See, the question that Romans 7 forces us to ask is this, what does progress in sanctification look like? Now, when I did campus ministry at Baylor, I had a female student that I had been counseling with who struggled with an eating disorder ever since she was in junior high. She was very active in our ministry, but it took her two years to confide in me of her struggle. And we used to meet on a regular basis, weekly. And then over time, I told her, you need to confide into some girls that will be able to help you and to walk with you through this. And she did. And she was doing great. And then all of a sudden, a few months later, I get a call from her where she is absolutely broken. She's struggling with God's love for her, and she doesn't even know if she's still a Christian because of it. So I asked her, did you throw up recently? And she said, I did over the weekend. And then I asked her, why do you think that God can't love you anymore? Well, because obviously I don't love him because I still sin. Oh, I said, so God's love for you is dependent on your love for him? 
And she said, I don't know, but all I know is I'm going backwards because I still struggle. And then I told her, I said, you have more assurance of your salvation than I do. (laughs) I said, let's get this straight. Wait a minute. How long did you go without throwing up? She said, two months. Okay, let me get this straight. Now, for three to four years, or for, well, five years, you had been throwing up three to four times a week, and then you threw up once in two months, and you're going backwards? Besides her struggle with this particular sin, she struggled even more with the way God viewed her because she still struggled with sin. And I wonder how many of you this morning struggle with the same thing. Is the struggle that we really have, is it really with our sin? Or is it with the way we think God views us because we struggle with sin? See, do you... Do you doubt God's love for you because you think that spiritual health consists of having no sickness at all? Do you believe and feel like you are regressing in sanctification because you still struggle? If you do, then I'm going to tell you the same thing I said to her. The fact that you're struggling with this is the sign that you are progressing, progressing. In sanctification, not regressing. So, what we learn from Paul in Romans 7 is that we cannot grow in holiness without, without a growing awareness of the sin that still dwells within us. See, the problem we have with sanctification is that we live in a quick fix, high speed, Google search, microwave, medicated instant gratification culture. We want things easily acceptable and fast, but with many options. (laughs) We don't want conflict or pain. We want ease. We want comfort. Man, just give me a pill. Zap change into me so it'll happen instantaneously. See, when it comes to sanctification, we want change to be instantaneous and free from struggle. We want some easy step to follow that will fix us. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Why? So we can easily move on. (laughs) We think growth should be quick. We think growth should be easy. And then along comes Romans 7. It smacks us upside the head. And it's forcing us to face the fact that there are no quick fixes in sanctification. There aren't any. And the reason why is because we have a powerful enemy within us that isn't going anywhere. This enemy is always active. It's always pursuing. It's always seeking to enslave and destroy us. Famous Puritan in the 1600s, John Owen, said this, Grace changes the nature of man, but nothing can change the nature of sin. And I don't want you to miss this. Who is the one struggling in these verses? Now, there's uh, scholars are divided over this. Okay, I've been divided over this. I think I've changed my view at least three times. 
Here's the issue. Is Paul presently describing himself as a Christian in verses 14 to 25, or is he describing his experience as a non-Christian? And without getting into all the debate and details of both sides, here's what I'm going to argue. This is the Apostle Paul. This is a mature Paul, a man who next to Jesus is probably the most godly man in the Bible, right? (laughs) But here he is describing the struggle that he has within him, with this enemy within him, and how frustrated it is when he fails and he falls and he gives in to sin's desires, See, I don't know about you, but I find a lot of comfort in the fact that Paul is not describing somebody else. He's describing his present struggle and the tension that this struggle creates in his life because it's a conflict between two opposing kingdoms. But this conflict is not out there somewhere like between two nations. It's happening in here within Paul, where there is a contradiction between what Paul desires and what Paul does. See, Paul knows that the new life that he lives in Christ is lived in an old body from Adam. Paul has died to sin, but the new life he lives, he lives in what he calls this body of death. Now, this image is lost on us today, but it wasn't to Paul's audience because Paul is writing to Romans who are very familiar with this phrase. See, the Romans used to chain their conquered foe who lived to the dead body of their fallen comrades, face to face, hand to hand, foot to foot. And the famous historian and poet Virgil said this about it. The living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face and hand to hand till choked with stench and loathed embraces tied. The lingering wretches pined away and died. The modern term or way to think about this body of death today It's a zombie. It's a zombie. It has no life in it. It's dead. So here's my proposition for us this morning. It's very simple. You will never be motivated to fight against sin if you don't understand that this new life in Christ is lived out in an old body of death whose power can be diminished, but whose presence will remain with you until you die. So to help us to understand sin's presence and power in our lives, to help us to know the enemy that resides within, God has given us a tool, (laughs) a tool that becomes the instrument to reveal sin's evil nature. And what is that tool? What is that instrument? The law the law. See, the structure of Romans 7 is very similar to the structure of Romans 6. So Paul isn't switching topics in Romans 7. 
He's still expounding on what it means to no longer be identified in Adam, but to be identified in Christ. Look at verse 4. Just as we died to sin's dominion and rule over us by God uniting us to his son, Paul says we died to the law through Christ's body so that we might be joined to him and bear fruit for God. So in chapter 6, Paul is telling us that our relationship to sin has drastically changed. And now in chapter 7, he's saying our relationship to the law has drastically changed. Well, what has changed about our relationship to the law? In Christ, we're no longer condemned by it. In Christ, we are no longer condemned by the law like we were in Adam. See, verse 6, we died to the law and been united to the one who fulfilled the law, which means what? We've been released from its condemning power. We're no longer required to meet its standard. Why? Because Jesus met the law's perfect standard for us. But then in verses 7 through 13, we see that even though we died to the law by being united to Christ, the law's function hasn't changed. And I'm going to be honest, Christian, you have got to understand this. It still functions as an expression of God's holiness, which means it reveals our sinfulness. That function of the law never changes for the Christian. It still reveals. It still uncovers. It still condemns, but not you anymore. Because our relationship to it has changed, when sin is exposed, when sin is defined by the law, it no longer condemns us, it condemns sin in us. You see the distinction? <laughs> Look at verse 17. What does Paul say? It is no longer I who do it. But sin in me. Why? Because Paul is now identified with Christ, no longer identified with Adam. And because he's identified with Christ, when he's confronted with the law, the law condemns sin. It does not condemn Paul. I want you to see this, well, to see this. We need to look at what sin does when it's confronted by God's law. Look at verse 5. <laughs> God's law arouses sinful passions. In Adam, in the flesh, the law telling us to do something or not to do something was the occasion for sin to express itself by arousing the desire in you to not want to obey it. <laughs> we lived in Houston, our next-door neighbor, she was so tired of the kids uh, trampling on her grass and also getting into her flower beds that she actually put out a sign that said, keep out of the flowers. <laughs> Which, what do you think it did to me? <laughs> now I want to step in them. <laughs> now I want, oh, hey, whoo, whoo, ha, ha, ha. Now I want, I see the sign, don't do this. And now I want to. That's what sin does with the law. It arouses within you the desire to not want to obey it. So, 
This raises a question. And if the law arouses sinful desires within me, then is the law sin? And this is where Paul gives his strongest Greek phrase, meganoito, may it never, ever, ever be. Because according to verses 7 through 13, the law reveals and defines sin. The law, in other words, exposes to reveal the evil nature and purpose of sin. See, Paul would not have known what coveting was if the law didn't say, you shall not covet. And in verse 12, the law, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. But then in verse 13, if the law is good... And yet sin uses it to create the desire in me to disobey it. Then did, did the law cause my death? Again, Paul gives that strong phrase, meganoito, may it never, ever, ever be. The law didn't cause my death. The law exposed who the real culprit was. Sin. In you. See, sin, what's it doing? It's using something good. It's using something holy. It's using something righteous for its evil purposes. Why? To destroy you. See, Paul's point in verses 7 through 13 is to show us how utterly evil and sinful sin really is. <laughs> how it's always seeks to use anything and everything that's good for its evil purposes. So why does he want us to see how the law reveals the evil nature of sin? So we would see the evil nature of sin. <laughs> so that we would be convinced how evil it is. So that we would be more motivated to fight against it. So we would not be deceived by it. But there's still more needed to help motivate us. See, we don't, even, we don't just need to see its nature rightly. We need to see its power and its presence rightly. And this is verses 14 to 25 where all the controversy comes in. Paul's inward struggle as a Christian, I'm arguing for, it's evidence that sin's influence still remains in Paul and that sin's rebellious nature does not change. In other words, sin is always active. And because it's always active, we're always susceptible to it. You see, sin is most active when you think it's least active. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. <laughs> For I do not do what I want, but I do the very e thing I hate. And then in verses 18 through 19. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And doesn't this describe you? Doesn't this bring clarity to the inward war and contradiction that's going on inside of you? 
doesn't this bring clarity to the struggle that you face that nobody else really knows? And I don't want you to miss this. When Paul struggles with the reality of being weak, when he struggles with the reality that he succumbs to the very thing he hates, while he's struggling to understand this contradiction within him, look at verse 17 and look at verse 20. Paul is not condemned. Sin is. Sin as the enemy within him is identified as the culprit and sin is condemned, not Paul. Look at verse 14, this enemy within Paul. It is so powerful that at times Paul actually feels like he's been ripped out of the clutches of Jesus' hands and placed right back under the slavery to sin. Sold into bondage as a slave. Who here has never felt that? Sin's power and its perpetual presence is so strong that Paul realizes something in verse 21 that whenever he wants to do good, sin's right there with him, wanting him to do evil, which means it's always active. And because it's always active, when Paul finds himself giving into it, notice what it leads Paul to admit and cry out, I can't deliver myself from it. I am not strong enough to defeat sin's power. Who, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I don't have time to do this passage justice. So I just want to make some observations about this, and then I want to look at some implications and application. Number one, sin's presence and power creates a tension within every Christian. And this tension is very real. And this tension is very normal. Paul's struggle, in other words, is the description of the Christian life. The Christian life is not a life of constant victory over sin. The victory over sin has already been won by Jesus. So now the Christian struggles with the sin that still dwells within us. Which means the struggle is not a sign of spiritual regression, but of spiritual progress. See, the more you grow, the more conflict you're going to see. <laughs> and the more conflict you see, the more rightly you're going to understand who you are. And you're going to realize more and more how powerless you are against it. In other words, <laughs> this is progress. Because it leads you to rely less and less on yourself and rely more and more on Jesus. Second, this inward struggle is meant to bring comfort and assurance. 
which means the conflict within means there's a contrary influence within you (laughs) to your flesh. The contrary influence in you is is the Spirit's presence. You see, in Adam, there is no conflict with sin. But now in Christ, there is, which means the evidence of the Spirit's presence is the conflict. And that brings comfort. That brings assurance. Third, okay, the law is the tool that exposes this conflict. It's not the solution. So do not use it as the solution. Use it to expose the areas where you sin. Use it to expose the areas where you're not trusting in Jesus. But do not use it as a tool to fix you because it can't. It was never meant to be a tool to fix you. It was meant to be the tool to expose sin so you'd see its nature rightly. So that you would see how evil it really is. In order to motivate you to fight against it. Fourth. Oh, yeah, I did want to say this. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Seeing sin's power and perpetual presence, doesn't that tell us that there are no quick fixes in sanctification? There are no quick resolutions. It's a lifelong process. And here's what I wish we could just get. I, I, this, is, this is something I wish I could just, as Luther would say, beat it into your head. Having your sin exposed is a good thing. Your sin's not a good thing. But having it exposed and defined is a good thing. Because you're no longer condemned by the law The law now serves to show you sin's evil nature so you learn to hate it, so that you learn to fight against it. Fourth thing, the law in exposing sin, rather than condemning us, it actually creates in us a greater longing to be delivered from it. And isn't that the point? You see, Paul's cry in verse 24, it's not an expression of despair. It's an expression of his desire to be free from sin's presence. I'm tired of this. I want to be rid of it. I hate this conflict. I hate this contradiction in my heart. I hate that I am prone to wander, that I'm prone to leave the God I love. So do you see what's happening? The struggle within, with sin, is actually producing within Paul a growing hatred for it. It's actually causing a greater longing and desire to be delivered from it. And isn't this what we most need? In order to stop loving our sin... We have to learn to hate it. And in order to hate it, we have to see its nature and its purposes 
rightly. Well, no, we're on the fifth one now. Leads to the fifth thing. The struggle with sin should produce humility within us. The fact that every Christian will struggle with sin should humble every Christian. Because sin is always active, because sin is always pursuing and seeking to destroy, then we're always susceptible to it. Knowing this should cause us to be more patient with others. Knowing this should cause us to be more compassionate with others. Knowing this should cause us to be more understanding of what others are going through because we understand the struggle. Which means we aren't better than others who give in to their sin. It also means we should not be shocked at sin. It also means we should not be self-righteous and judgmental of others who sin. (sighs) Lastly, the tension in Paul, the real tension, is that the law still shows him how powerless he is to change his heart's desire and defeat sin on his own. So regardless of who you think Paul is referring to, this is the point of Romans 7. You need somebody stronger than you. The law is meant to lead you outside of yourself. To look to the only one who never succumbed to sin's desires. To look to the only one who did for you what you cannot and could not do for yourself. In other words, the law cannot change your desire for sin. It's meant to expose your sin and lead you to the only one who can heal you when you do sin. But here's the thing. The biggest obstacle and stumbling block to your sanctification and to my sanctification is the fact that we still believe we're good. The fact that we still believe that we can do something to please God. The fact that we still believe that we can add something to our salvation. We can earn God's favor through what we do. See, we still cling to some aspect that we are good. This is why we try to justify ourselves, is it? This is why we cling to our own righteousness. And think we're better than other people who aren't as righteous as us. This is why we still try to fight sin in our own power. Because we don't believe what the law causes Paul to see. There is nothing, absolutely nothing good that dwells within me. Every one of us needs to feel the weight of those words. So you may disagree with Paul (laughs) over that statement, but your disagreement only proves how powerful sin is. Why? Because sin doesn't want you to trust in Jesus. It wants you to trust in yourself. It wants you to lean and cling to your own righteousness, not Jesus's. See... (laughs) 
if this is you, this is why you can't rest. If this is you, there's, this is why there's no joy in your life. If this is you, you can't rest because you know you keep failing. <laughs> and when you fail, what do you feel? Condemned. I don't measure up. I'm not enough. And because you feel condemned, you're worried that others are going to find out. This is why you hide. This is why you try to cover up the reality of the inward struggle that's happening in you. Or then you go to the opposite extreme. You become so paralyzed by sin, and then you become depressed that you just give up. What's the point? If this is you, look at verses 24 through 25 again. When the law shows Paul that there is nothing good in him. Notice, it doesn't paralyze Paul, nor does it depress Paul. (laughs) It doesn't cause him to give up as if there's no use. The conflict actually drives him to hope more and more in Jesus and less and less in himself. This is why, who is his cry directed to? The only one who is good. The only one who has the power. The only one who never succumbed to sin's desires. In other words, seeing his sin causes Paul to see more of his Savior. Seeing his sin causes him to trust less and less in himself and to trust more and more in Jesus. That's progress in sanctification. And I need to end. Here's how I want to end. I want you to imagine that if everything you've ever done, everything you've ever done and everything you will do, let's imagine every thought you've had Every motive you've had, every sinful action you've had was put on display and you saw all of it. Could you handle that? Could you handle seeing the reality of just how sinful you really are? See what Paul is teaching in Romans 7 and why he so quickly jumps to Romans 8 is because God already sees it. God has already handled it. He already knows it more than you do. That means every evil thought, every evil desire, every evil action that you have committed and ever will commit has already been condemned. Jesus became it. And he took the full weight of all of God's condemnation for it. That is why Paul says, now, right now, presently, now, 
There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means right now when you fail and fall, there is no condemnation. That means right now when you serve sin, there is no condemnation. Right now when you continue to struggle with sin, there is no condemnation. So what what is growing in sanctification? It's still moving towards God when you fail him. Because you know he's the only safe place you can go. Because you know he will forgive you. You know that he will pardon you. You know that only he can put you back together. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus... That's how Paul begins chapter 8. You know how he ends it? Because there's no condemnation, then guess what? There is nothing that can separate you now from the love of God in Christ. No condemnation, then no separation. Amen.